And uh, we are live. Thank you very much for joining me. This uh, episode of the Turing Church podcast will be a conversation with Bobby Azarian, the author of The Romance of Reality, How the Universe Organizes Itself to Create Life, Consciousness, and uh, Cosmic uh, Complexity. The book uh, was published a few months ago. Uh, I am uh, Giulio Prisco, and in uh, the text that uh, comes together with the podcast, you'll find a link to my review of Bobby's book. Uh, Bobby has recently launched a Substack newsletter called The Road to Omega. I highly recommend subscribing. And uh, we are going to discuss about uh, both uh, the ideas in Bobby's book and uh, those uh, that he's uh, writing down in his newsletter. So thank you very much for joining me, Bobby. Thanks for having me. I'm a fan of your work. And I think I found out about the Turing Church maybe a few years ago and uh, found that the views were really aligned with mine. So I'm happy to be here. Thank you very much, and our views are uh, aligned indeed. Um, let me also welcome uh, Terry, who is a guest who is uh, listening in at the moment, and uh, I guess will uh, intervene uh, later. These uh, interviews that I'm doing started as one-on-one -on -one conversations that I have with people whose uh, input I want to have uh, for my next book, but uh, I thought to open this uh, series of interviews to whoever wants to come, because you know it's always uh, better to chat in uh, three rather than in two, and chatting in four would be even better. Uh, let me start uh, right away with uh, the question that is uh, first, um, in my mind, uh, Schrödinger said that understanding life will require other laws of physics to complement the physics we know. And you, Bob, in your book, you say that uh, some other laws of physics favor uh, complexity, life, and consciousness. My, now, my question is, are these... Uh, other laws of physics just uh, incrementally improvements to the physics uh, we know today, or uh, are they an entirely new framework based on different things? So uh, do we need uh, something a little bit uh, better than the physics of today, or something a whole lot better and uh, very different from the physics of today? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I myself am not even sure how to, to categorize these new laws, whether they're, they're new fundamental laws or whether they're just incremental advances on our current physics. Um, I do know that you can't use Newtonian mechanics to predict the behavior of living organisms. Um, so if you try to use Newton's laws of motion to predict uh, the trajectory of a rock moving, being pushed by a gust of wind, for example, um, you can do that perfectly. Uh, but if you try to predict the motion of a bird moving, uh, the equations just will completely fail. So 
uh, systems that have uh, encoded information in the system, biological systems I'm primarily talking about, but also systems that we create, uh, you can't use classical mechanics to predict the behavior of those systems. Um, so <clears throat> in Schrodinger's book, What is Life?, which was really influential on my book because he basically looks at biology from the perspective of a physicist and <clears throat> really frames life in these thermodynamic terms as life being this um, phenomenon that has to evade this tendency toward disorder. And it does that by capturing energy from the environment. And there are a lot of things that come out of that very simple uh, conception that uh, we can talk about later, which I think allow us to, to kind of create this kind of physics of life. Um, so in the book, when I talk about, you know, new laws of physics uh, to describe life, uh, I'm thinking about new theories like integrated information theory with uh, by Giulio Tononi and Christoph Koch uh, is working on that as well. Um, Sarah Walker and colleagues are developing assembly theory. So there's a lot of new theories that are, are trying to explain life. Um, but I also had in mind uh, so, some older laws and principles uh, like from the field of cybernetics. And I think cybernetics uh, is an underappreciated, uh, you know, body of, of literature, um, that came out in about like the forties and fifties. It was mostly developed by Norbert Wiener and Ross Ashby. And, uh, so for example, Ross Ashby put forward different laws and principles like the principle of self-organization and the law of requisite variety. And those are things I describe in my book. So, those laws are probably just building on our current physics, but again, classical mechanics or even quantum mechanics can't be used to predict life in any real way. And so, for example, the law of requisite variety basically says that an organism uh, must encode a model of its environment, the variables, the biologically relevant variables in its environment, and the complexity of that model must match the complexity of the challenges in the environment. So you get a sort of law that tells you how complex a system should be given uh, the environment that it's embedded in. So those are the laws that I was thinking of, but could there be something more radical, some sort of laws? Maybe we find that consciousness is fundamental and that there are certain laws um, that can be used to understand systems of agency it's possible um so yeah it's an exciting time in science where where there's going to be radical changes to our fundamental frameworks for understanding uh the universe and life now let's uh, go back to this example very good one that you made that you cannot use classical mechanics to predict uh, how a bird will fly i completely agree with that but uh, you are aware that not everyone agrees with that. So let me summarize uh, the arguments that some uh, skeptic, uh, skeptics would have. And these arguments basically amount to that uh, the bird, yes, can decide to fly right or left at any moment. But this decision is the result of some uh, chemical and electrical phenomena 
that happen in uh, the brain of the bird, which could be understood if we had uh, a complete deterministic theory of everything that goes uh, down to the right scales for uh, achieving a complete description of what happens in the brain of the bird. So they would say, and again, I don't agree, but that's what they would say. They would say that no, uh, classical mechanics or uh, perhaps not uh, uh, classical mechanics, but uh, whatever is uh, considered as the fundamental theory of matter at this moment, it would be quantum field theory. Yeah. Uh, if we have that theory and we follow that theory to its uh, unique mathematical conclusions, then yes, we could predict whether uh, the bird is going to fly right or left and when. How do you answer that? Yeah, so I know I think that 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 argument's completely wrong. So, um, so so before, uh, so uh, so do I. But let's hear uh, some. <laughs> well, well so 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 some of the stuff that you said that I thought is right. You know, there are chemical processes in the brain and informational processes that are understandable mechanistically, and they're part of this story. But it's a step further. So so I'm not arguing that there's nothing unnatural, nothing like beyond the physical going on. But I still don't think that you can use any of those theories to predict what the bird's going to do. Um, so it's really based on a misunderstanding of the nature of reality and this kind of old school determinism that was made popular by Laplace. So basically Laplace envisioned the bird. Okay, so first of all, we we agree that as an aggregate system, as this macro scale system, you can't predict it using classical mechanics. But someone might argue that if you knew the position of every atom or molecule in the bird, that then you could use those same laws to predict what the bird would do um, as an aggregate system. Um, but the problem with that is we know that there's not this billiard ball universe where things are just made of atoms moving around like pool balls. So if that were the case that we could use classical mechanics to determine uh, the trajectories of these components, but we know from quantum mechanics that there's not these clear deterministic trajectories. There's a wave function uh, that um, expresses uh, this sort of possibility space for where a particle will be in the next moment. Um, and even if you make an argument and say, well, you know, because the bird is this macro scale system, maybe there's some sort of collapse into this predictable large scale system because of a mechanism like quantum Darwinism or something, you still have to, to deal with, with cha chaotic phenomena, phenomena. So, um, chaos theory basically showed that um, certain types of systems like dissipative structures, which include tornadoes and whirlpools and living systems, which are basically uh, dissipative structures that have encoded information. So they're not completely like those other chaotic systems. They actually move with agency. Um, they're 
just as impossible to predict as these low-level chaotic systems because let's say you're trying to make a prediction and you want to put in the initial state of all the particles in the system into a computer and try to predict the future state. You have to round that number to a certain amount of decimal places. And that small amount of um, error that you get just because you have to round uh, will basically lead to um, uh, the real behavior of the system diverging greatly from what was predicted. And uh, Edward Lawrence uh, learned this in, I think, like the 50s or something when he was trying to uh, understand weather patterns, that uh, basically weather can't be predicted um, very far in advance because you get this problem with chaotic systems where if you don't define the initial state with perfect accuracy, which I suppose would require an infinitely long string of decimal places, then you're going to not be able to predict the system. So living systems have chaotic components. They're not predictable, even in theory. So you can't use any law, any fundamental laws of physics to predict the behavior of that. I will also say that uh, what the book argues is that when you have, you know, like I said, when you have an organism, there are these chemical reactions going on in these processes, but there's also information embedded in, in the system uh, through evolution. And that to, to understand like where a bird is going to fly, um, you have to understand the bird's uh, model of the world, uh, which is basically an accumulation of information that's been built up through an evolutionary history and through learning uh, during the lifetime of a bird. So I'm not saying that it's completely unpredictable. Um, uh, so yeah, it, you know, language gets tricky here. Uh, a bird's um, path won't be fully predictable, but I think living systems are actually semi-predictable. So if you drop a rock and a bird off a tower, you can predict what the rocks, where the rock's going to go exactly with Newtonian mechanics. But the bird, you can't predict in the same way. However, you know it's not going to splat on the ground. It's going to fly away right. from the ground because um, it has information embedded in it that gives it this drive where it's trying to survive. So um, an interesting idea that, you know, I kind of came to towards the end of the book from, you know, reading, you know, just um, different things. Uh, I don't want to drop too many references on people, but a great book by Eric Smith and Harold Morowitz from the Santa Fe Institute called The Origin and Nature of Life on Earth. Um, they basically have yeah, this... that's the book that you see at the very end of your book, isn't it? Uh, yes. And they have this phase transition theory of life um, where basically uh, it's argued that um, uh, when you have large aggregates of agents, you get this predictable sort of behavior. You get these phase transitions and uh, chapter seven of the book is a good summary of statistical mechanics and uh, specifically non-equilibrium statistical mechanics, which is basically statistical thermodynamics for organized systems, for living systems. And uh, they kind of describe phase transitions, whether you're talking about an organism or you're talking about uh, a social system like a society, 
as doing like a form of error correction. So basically, I think something like a social statistical mechanics, which is a term that I think Isaac Asimov used in his like foundation series. Um, I think something like that can be developed where we can start to model agents and um, kind of predict where society is going. Of course, those won't be perfect predictions, but I think we can see, for example, Peter Turchin is an evolutionary theorist that used a field that he's developed called cliodynamics that's based on uh, evolutionary theory and, 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 and data from, from historical trends. And he predicted the age of chaos that we're now seeing uh, in 2010. He said 2020 would be an age of chaos similar to what we saw in the last civil rights movement. So the idea is that when you get all of these agents interacting and they make this larger collective system, you can start to see these uh, trends and cycles, which can allow you to see where uh, society is going. But the interesting thing, as soon as you figure that out and you make that prediction, and let's say you broadcast it to society and everybody becomes aware that it's going in this direction, then society can collectively sort of choose to change that path. Um, so nothing is set in stone. It's not the old Laplacian worldview where everything is made of particles that are like billiard balls. Um, those particles clump together and form larger systems. And then those systems have information embedded in the, the, the structural and functional patterns of those systems. And so we have to, to, to predict living systems, we have to start thinking about uh, information embedded through, through evolution and learning. But interestingly, there may be this higher level predictability where we can predict what systems will do uh, in aggregate form. Yeah, great. And this uh, would be, uh, especially when uh, speaking about uh, the bird, you mention all the models of the world and all the information that has been accumulated in uh, the brain of the bird. And uh, I guess uh, this uh, is an example of this uh, causal power of information yes. upon which you think the new laws of physics could be based. But uh, exactly. let me continue playing uh, the devil's advocate sure. and say that uh, some hardline materialist, physical materialist and uh, reductionist would say, well, okay, that's very good. And all that you say is good. But ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, the information is physically encoded somehow in uh, the brain of uh, the bird. And if, uh, uh, once again, because it's exactly the same argument, if you have a complete model of uh, the brain of the bird at uh, the scale that you need, and if you can follow that model through mathematically, then you could explain all that the bird uh, does without having to invoke uh, fuzzy concepts like uh, the casual power of information. And again, that's not what I think, but this is uh, what uh, some uh, uh, people with the reductionist attitude would say at this moment. And what is your answer to that? 
Yeah, no, I think sir, when you when you go to the scale of the brain, you have to start talking about things in terms of information. And uh, then you basically have to transition to this other system. The only way the other thing works, if you're talking about the components and then you're saying that these components, you know, follow something like the, the Schrodinger equation and that you can, you know, use some quantum theory to predict where everything's going. I don't think that's true. I think when these components come together and make these larger scale systems, specifically information systems like biological systems, then uh, the game changes and you have to look at these patterns of information. So I would agree with them that you can that 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 there's nothing beyond science and beyond um, what you would call, you know, material, uh, you know, elements interacting uh, in, in this materialistic way. But um even when you use the word material, it gets a little tricky because is information a material substance? Well, it has to be embedded in some sort of physical system. The information has to be encoded in some substrate. But uh, yeah, so you, you are still talking about a mechanistic story. And I think, you know, that's why the argument in the book won over some skeptics, people like Michael Shermer, because it's a purely mechanistic story. But it's not this reductionist story where we can completely predict what something's going to do based on particle physics. We have to go up to higher scales. But when you go up to higher scales and you're talking about these sort, sorts of systems, there are lots of chaotic processes. So none of your predictions, even though I'm saying it's still like a, a physical system that we can understand mechanistically and scientifically, you're not going to get perfect predictions. There's, there's just no way to do it with chaotic processes. No supercomputer uh, can do that. Um, even a supercomputer the size of the universe. So in some sense, the universe doesn't know what's going to happen next. Reality is truly open. And because of quantum indeterminism and chaotic processes, there's this kind of... Um, Things aren't fixed. There's some slack in the causal chain, which mm -hmm. allows for for new surprises. So it's a really new, interesting way to see reality because we're no longer part of this kind of nihilistic worldview, this Laplacian worldview where we're made of particles and we're just being pushed around by our particles in this bottom up way. Now there's top down causation where the system is steering the components that it's made of. And that's why you have to go up scales and talk about things at the system level and not just the particles because the particles the trajectories of those components that you're made of is being steered by patterns of information in the brain and once you get to that those sorts of dynamics you have to talk about the causal power of information the, the fundamental physics models just fail at that level I like it uh, very much. Uh, well, you know, uh, I do agree on nearly everything you said, but let me continue criticizing because I think I can learn more uh, this way. Please and, do. Yeah, uh, I mean, this is a big, big debate. Like, I think, yeah. for example, Sean Carroll, I think he would make the argument that you just made when you're playing devil's advocate a minute ago, but he does recognize emergence and these other things that I've said. So uh, it would be interesting, you know, to to present the argument to, to someone like him and uh, see what they say. Uh, he did interview Sarah Walker and yeah. 
um, they did have this kind of clashing of ideas where she said that she believed in strong emergence. And he said that basically the, the, the standard model would, would, would be wrong if strong emergence was true. Um, mm -hmm. So, so I, That's I, what I think as well, but Sarah uh, Walker, yeah, uh, this is what I think as well. But in fact, I think that uh, emergency is uh, true and the standard model is wrong or not wrong, but incomplete. Incomplete, incomplete, exactly. Be complete. But in fact, we are uh, already discussing what uh, to me is uh, the fundamental open uh, problem in science, which is the never ending issue of uh, determinism versus uh, chance in uh, in uh, uh, natural laws and you have already said where you stand on this when you said that uh, a combination of uh, quantum physics and chaotic dynamics makes uh, predicting the future impossible in uh, practice and also arguably even in uh, principle mm. I agree on that, but at the same time, continuing on determinism, it seems to me that uh, there are different ways in which the term determinism is used. One is whether you can or cannot predict the future, and another is uh, whether uh, the future could be any different from uh, what uh, uh, actually happens and uh, these uh, two definitions are not the same thing they're two entirely different things as a matter of fact uh, I'm reading uh, recently a lot about uh, the metaphysics of uh, determinism well we're going to going into that uh, uh, later but well when you say that at what some are, point, what, could you quickly uh name a couple of the books you're reading on that i'd be interested to um to know. i've been uh reading for example the new book by tim uh, palmer called uh, the primacy of doubt highly recommended is a philosopher uh, uh, no, he's a physicist. He's actually someone who started as a specialist in general relativity and then became a, an expert in meteorology. But he is an expert of uh, the mathematics of uh, chaotic dynamics. And uh, they, uh, I mean, I do recommend that book. It's very much related to yours. What's his name once more? Tim Palmer. Tim Palmer. Okay. I've read it. It's a good book, but it's, it, it, it doesn't get me. I mean, he, he's uh, recognizing a lot of the stuff you're talking about, but I don't think he goes anywhere with it that yeah, gets me all that me... excited. Anyway, it's, it's a good let book. Let me just put the link to my review of his book in the chat, which is here. It's very highly recommended. Now, he, uh, the, uh, the concept of uh, determinism is uh, very much a center stage in his book. So that uh, while studying and uh, trying to understand why he claims 
that his uh, theory of everything between uh, uh, brackets is deterministic because it didn't seem deterministic at all to me. Hmm. But he claims it is. And uh, I, mean, I can make sense of that reading the works of a philosopher of physics called uh, Emily Adam, who has this uh, very interesting conception of determinism, which is, uh, I mean, determinism does not mean that uh, one thing happens after another thing and you can predict the second thing uh, on the basis of the first thing, which is uh, kind of the intuitive uh, definition of determinism, but uh, things can be uh, globally deterministic, even if they are uh, unpredictable in principle. And she makes a very nice uh, analogy, which uh, really made me understand something that I didn't understand before. And the analogy is with a uh, game of uh, Sudoku. Do you play Sudoku? No. Now, you know, uh, well, uh, just learn to play Sudoku and you see what I mean. I mean, Sudoku okay. is a number puzzle and you have to fill a board with numbers. There is only one way to do that. But uh, the fact that there is only one way to do that does not mean that you can start uh, with the first cell, then predict the second cell, then the third one, and then the fourth one, and so on is a global thing. Yeah. Uh, you may if you model the sequence like a sequence in uh, time, uh, I mean, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven, eight, nine, ten, in the block, you may have to go to the future to find out what will happen at the next moment of time. So that, uh, that something is globally deterministic in the sense that it is the solution of a problem which has only one solution does not mean that uh, it can be analyzed deterministically like a temporal sequence. And if mm -hmm. you do try to analyze it deterministically like a temporal sequence, uh, then you find yourself in the same situation that you have in quantum physics, that you can only give probabilistic answers to what happens next. And I found this concept totally fascinating. And I yeah, I love really, it. And I really do hope that uh, Emily is not listening to this because you know I haven't explained it as good as she does. So that I do recommend to write. Uh, she has also wrote, written a book called Foundations of Quantum Mechanics. It's a very short book. I think it has like 80 pages, but she says a lot of interesting things in those 80 pages. But I'll send you the links to all these things. I'm also writing a long uh, uh, post on all these things. I love it. I think you did a great job explaining it because I fully understood it from, from what you said. And it's actually something that I was going to put in the book that I did have. And then I took it out because I thought it might be a little bit too confusing though. I do, I do hint at it in the book, but basically uh, it, it goes back to what I was saying earlier that you can have this um, indeterminism 
at this fundamental level, but at these larger scales, you can start to get predictable patterns where you start to get something like, uh, you know, what some people might call a destiny for the universe. But basically, in the book, I argue that cosmic evolution is this process of hierarchical self-organization where nature's fundamental components come together to make larger systems, which then make copies of themselves and then come together to make larger systems. So we have subatomic particles that come together to make atoms, which come together to make molecules, which come together to make cells, which come together to make multicellular organisms, which form societies. And now we have something like a global brain emerging on the earth. Um, and I believe that this process continues. So you have this series of far from equilibrium mm -hmm. attractors, right. and that's this sort of global um, predictability for the cosmos. The idea is that it just keeps going on. Uh, Valentin Turchin wrote about this in, in his book, The Phenomenon of Science. Uh, very, very, very good book. I love it. Yeah, yeah. It's totally underappreciated, too. Um so uh, I was calling this uh, non-equilibrium statistical determinism. But yeah, you do see this global predictability when you have, you know, aggregate systems where you have many things that are interacting uh, and you have it because of uh, and, and Eric Smith and, and Morowitz talk about this in the, in the book I mentioned earlier. But um, basically, when when you get these sort of like law of large numbers effects where you have this collective of all these things interacting. Um, uh, basically a lot of the, the randomness gets um, averaged out and you get this right. predictability at the, at the higher scale, this global uh, predictability. So um, I think that's the right way to look at things. And, and in the book, I say, I, I describe it for people, you know, who, who this jargon might kind of go over their heads. I say there's this compatibility between free will and destiny. So you have free will, which emerges from our causal power and our agency. So we're these informational systems that aren't constrained by the law, the fundamental laws of physics. We can where where rocks will never move uphill on their own. If a force isn't pushing the rock uphill, it won't go uphill living systems climb uphill. Um, it's nothing magical. We're powered by metabolism, but we're not constrained in the way that inanimate systems are. Mm -hmm. So um, you do have agency um, because there is this, um, you know, fundamental indeterminism where everything's not strictly deterministic in the Laplacian sense, but you have this global predictability that seems to suggest that there is something like a cosmic script that the universe is falling, mm -hmm. uh, to use the word of Paul Davies, uh, Harvard astronomer Roy I'll say, Gould, uh, a building plan. Um, I would say perhaps uh, not uh, predictability, because sometimes it's not the case, but something more like uh, understandability. Yeah, or something makes sense. Yeah, the, something makes sense to you even you are not are not able to predict uh, the detail. As a matter of fact, I think all uh, your uh, um, worldview fits very nice with uh, this concept of uh, global determinism. Because, well, uh, what you say is that there is something in the uh, laws of uh, nature that. That forces the universe 
to produce higher and higher levels of organization and complexity resulting in life, consciousness, and perhaps superintelligence and all that. But then again, a hardline reductionist would say that if what they call the laws of microphysics are uh, causally closed, then nothing of that can happen because the laws of microphysics themselves without any extra input must be able to always predict a unique solution for whatever happens next. But uh, I find the concept of uh, global determinism much more powerful than that because uh, it uh, does explain things, but uh, still leaves enough uh, causal uh, slack yep. for things to happen in uh, whatever ways could respond to the goal between brackets that the universe wants to achieve, which is that of uh, building up uh, complexity. And I think uh, it's, uh, oh, I see the tail of your cat. Yeah, yeah, he's causing a lot of trouble. Let me give you yeah, one more example. Um, yeah. So the story that you just described about global determinism, I think it's understandable in 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 mathematical and physical terms. So um, it's really just a system moving towards an attractor in its <laughs> configuration space. So. That's what you Palmer be... says. What's that? That's what Palmer says. Palmer says? Uh, uh, Palmer, the physicist meteorologist that I mentioned before. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I can't wait to dig into these two books you mentioned. Yeah, I, I, and I love that. Are they pretty new too? Uh, yeah, both. Uh, Palmer's one is very new. It was published last month. Very cool. I, I love that people are talking about this right now. I'm... I'm really surprised I didn't know about these people. Um, but it's really cool to to see that. So it's kind of like uh, you can compare it to, let's say you throw like a bouncy ball down down a hill, you're at the top mm -hmm. of the hill. Um, the the, the pr specific path that the ball takes isn't easily predictable, it might bounce to the left, or to the right. Uh, but it's going to end up at the bottom of the hill. So there is this deterministic trajectory because it's moving into a valley. Right, it's right. moving into an attractor. And so if this story is true, I think it has massive implications for all of physics, including quantum mechanics. And it might lead to a new interpretation of quantum mechanics. And I touch on this at the end of my book in the very last chapter. But basically, I say if the universe is becoming increasingly complex then the collapse of the wave function isn't just this arbitrary thing that somehow the, all of the collapses that are going on in the universe must be going towards this state of maximal complexity. This is exactly and, what I think. This is exactly what I think myself. I don't know. If, are, are you familiar with John Campbell who wrote um, yes. The Path of Knowledge, yeah. Universal yeah. Darwinism? Yes. So he, th he, he thinks this as well. And... I kind of base it on quantum Darwinism, um, but uh, the creative qu quantum Darwinism hasn't gone this far. But I think that we can understand the universe as moving towards something like this cosmic attractor. 
And so that means its evolution isn't arbitrary. It is deterministic. But when we use the word deterministic, we're using it in a different sense now. It's not deterministic in the way Laplace's demon uh, kind of conceived it of being. Um, it's deterministic in this way such that, you know, you have these large-scale emergences that you can see this outline of. We can see where the future is headed, but there seems to be freedom in the path that it takes to get there. And that sounds like what Sudoku is. It's it's kind of like there's this, you know, there's possibility and like openness, but there is also sort of like what Dan Dennett called forced moves. And he was comparing life and evolution to a chess game where there are these force moves where basically um things certain things have to happen so i think yeah, it's, it's the same really... example it's the same example i think if you think of a move of chess uh, of a game of chess now at uh at uh, any moment in the game there is a number of uh, possibility for what the next move can be but uh, most of those possibilities do not happen because uh, you know a good uh, player would not make a really stupid move. So that if you want to make a theory in which you have a certain probability for one move to happen rather than another one, then you have to introduce the concept of uh, uh, value uh which would be the value toward achieving a goal and that's also another very good metaphor that the universe is playing chess with itself Perhaps that's, I, I love that yeah that's that's totally what i what i think <laughs> what i think is going on and i i just i compare life in the book to a chess playing ai that because a lot of people, when I say life is inevitably going to spread, they think that's mystical because they're like, anything can happen. But I'm like, no, not anything can happen. It's this statistical system. And life is a network of complex adaptive systems. Right. And I use the term from David Deutsch, adaptive complexity, to describe the, the whole network. But basically, it works like nature's presenting life with challenges. And it's always like, you know, there's continual failure and continual death of organisms, but as a whole, the network is constantly adapting. The biosphere is constantly adapting and learning. So it's like a chess playing AI program that's learning from its failures, but it's encoding the information um, that it's acquired through those basically what are experiments. And soon it becomes unbeatable. It becomes more and more resilient right. and better at adapting to the conditions of nature and uh, it's increasing its causal power. But yeah, so it seems like nature has this kind of dynamic, this kind of Hegel like dialectic where um, nature's presenting life with with challenges or problems. And the, the fact that it gets, you know, it, ha it is able to overcome those challenges um, creates this principle that in the book I call Popper's principle, where problems create progress. But yeah, it is like nature's playing a game with itself. And that that's the mechanism through which life spreads and through which nature wakes up and the universe starts right. to become aware of itself. Did you notice that this has a lot in common with the what uh, with the philosophy that Robert uh, Piercig uh, builds in his novel? 
and also in uh, the very few works of nonfiction that he has published. Because uh, if you read uh, the Zen and the Art of uh, Motorcycle Maintenance, but even more than that, the second book, uh, Lila, um, you find some of the very same words that uh, oh, very cool. I, I haven't read those books, but you know, I'm I'm familiar with. Uh... Oh, you should. The first, the, the first one. Yeah, no, um, I was going to buy it for my wife, actually, uh, recently. So um, I had no idea it, it talked about these kinds of concepts. So Let me put in the chat. Uh, well, he didn't uh, use uh, terms from contemporary physics, of course, but mm -hmm. he essentially said the same thing. Very cool. Let's put a link in here. Yeah, another Robert Piercing on Universal Evolution. And I'll put it right here in the chat. I do recommend that uh, you read um, his novels. They are full of interesting philosophy. Now, so um, we have been saying that, well, uh, perhaps. Uh, the world is uh, deterministic in some sense, but uh, is also non-deterministic in some other sense. I like to call this concept uh, uh, open determinism. And like uh, now, uh, a question which is usually related to determinism or not is that of uh, free will. Uh, you talk about that in the book, but can you summarize uh, shortly where you stand on this? Yeah. Um, so Karl Popper and other people like William James had what they called a two-stage model of free will. And I don't talk about, I don't describe it this way in the book, but I would say um, what I'm putting forth is like a three-stage model of free will. <clears throat> and I'll explain what that means. So Basically, the people who argue against free will, people like Sam Harris and, you know, a lot of physicists, Sabine Hassenfelder, they, um, they recognize that the, the foundations of strict determinism or hard determinism are crumbling. So they recognize quantum mechanics and quantum indeterminacy, but they usually say that quantum indeterminacy doesn't give you free will either that in either case that you don't have free will either things are moving things are completely determined and you don't have any choice or agency or there's randomness and you don't have control over that randomness maybe it's even worse for free will um i think this misses a huge thing and that is control uh, cybernetic control and Dan Dennett is one of the people who has been more vocal recently about his belief in in free will of this variety um, he he doesn't talk about quantum indeterminism but he talks about control being the mechanism for free will so what quantum indeterminism gives you is not a mechanism for free will it just introduces the causal slack in the chain such that right the universe isn't this sequence of dominoes falling where it's right. just this this strict you know laplacian predictable kind of block time thing um so quantum indeterminism is kind of a pre 
precondition for i think true free will kevin mitchell a neurogeneticist makes this argument as well there's some people who think that you can have free will without you know with with determinism and maybe so maybe if you know there if things were deterministic but you have these components that clump together uh under the force of gravity and then you know systems that are bound together with chemical bonds like living systems that you would have this larger scale system that's then this computational system that that has agency maybe maybe you know you don't necessarily need quantum indeterminism but i'm kind of I, I tend to believe that that the quantum indeterminism is is crucial for introducing this causal slack, to use the term of George Ellis. Yeah. George Ellis is a physicist who's written a lot about top-down causation. So quantum indeterminism gives you the causal slack that is the precondition for systems that can move in a way that's not constrained by fundamental laws of physics. And then you have the emergence of control with systems that are uh, evolving through variation and natural selection. And, and that process is what builds up information in a system. Um, and I can talk about that more because um, that's what the, the middle of the book is about, basically how natural selection is an information channel. And that's why these fundamental you know, physics models kind of fail when we're trying to predict life because what's going on is they're acquiring information about the structure of the environment and that structure is mirrored in the structure of the system. And then it starts behaving in this way that's not deterministic in the in the old sense that it, it, it does have true agency. But so the cyberneticists talked about, you know, control, adaptive systems use positive and negative feedback loops to maintain this non-equilibrium oh. steady state of organization. And so the evolutionary process is what embeds the information in living systems. It's kind of this channel for information. And, and so you have quantum indeterminacy that allows the causal slack, and then you have cybernetic control that allows systems to 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 move around with agency somewhat freely compared to a rock um and so that gives us agency of the true kind that gives us causal power we're, we're really initiating new causal chains chains of cause and effect when we're deciding to do things however i don't say that that gives us free will fully because now we've overcome what I call physical determinism, but we still have biological determinism in that simple organisms seem to be kind of slaves to their biological programming. So I'm not sure that a single-celled organism has that much freedom in what it's doing. It's responding to its environment. Um, so I think that free will, you know, as, as we understand it and how we define those words comes when you have a more intelligent system, for example, something like a human with a prefrontal cortex, where we become aware of our programming and our mental models, and we can actually use metacognition and kind of tweak our own mental models or adjust our behavior so that we're not behaving according to biological instincts 
So for example, let's say we're hungry or something. Let's say in the book, I have the example of you bring like a caveman to Times Square and let's say he's hungry and he's walking past a food truck. He might grab a kebab off the food truck because he's hungry and he smells it. And it's just this automatic reaction. But, you know, a civilized person, uh, a member of today's society, even though we might feel that urge, we know not to do that because um, it's it's not acceptable. So we're over we're able to override our instincts with uh, metacognition and basically uh, this ability to override our biological programming would then be the source of free will. It would be that we're not slaves to our hardwiring. We can actually create a mental model of ourselves and we can understand our mental models and we can adjust our behavior to be consistent with our future goals such that we're not just acting off urges and instincts. Great. Now let's um, go back to the main uh, narrative, which is that the universe builds uh, complexity upon complexity, generates uh, life. First, very simple life, then simple life, uh, conscious life, intelligent life, perhaps super intelligent life at some point. At some point. Now, where does this process end? You mentioned the concept of uh, a great uh, cosmic mind at, uh, that uh, comes into being at uh, the end of, of time, very far in the future. And I guess most uh, people as soon as I hear this, they think about something like God. Yeah. Uh, well, perhaps what you have in mind is not exactly the same thing that most religious uh, believers uh, have in mind when they say God. But um, you know, uh, if I want, am I allowed to call that God? I'm uh, interested in your answer to that. If you're allowed to what? If I am allowed to, call, to call the cosmic mind God. Yeah, so this part is obviously speculative because if the future is open, we don't know exactly where it's going, but I do believe that we can see this rough outline and there is something like this global determinism you've described. And um, where it ultimately leads, leads uh, yeah, so I just wrote, I wrote an article for the website Noema that, that's coming out soon that challenges the heat death hypothesis. And Julian Barber, the theoretical physicist who in, I think, the late 90s wrote a book um, which presented this theory of block time, and he was really well known for that. He just came out with a new book called The Janus Point, and he argues that complexity can increase forever. And he says that's because that the universe is an open system. We know it's being the expansion is accelerating. It's being driven by this uh, mysterious force that we call dark energy, and that theories of systems uh, moving toward towards thermodynamic equilibrium or heat death are based on Boltzmann's bot model of a gas in a box. 
and that the universe isn't confined to a box that's expanding. So it doesn't seem like it has to come to thermal equilibrium. Um, and so perhaps life can go on forever. And in the book, I make an argument that with the expanding universe, it's based on an argument speculated about by David Deutsch and Stuart Kaufman and a cosmologist named David Laser actually wrote about this in the 60s and 70s. But the idea is as the universe expands, its maximum possible entropy is increasing faster than actual entropy. And apparently that can allow for the creation of free energy um, forever. So it's not clear that life has to come to an end. Um, but then the question is, if things are expanding and getting farther apart, can something like this cosmic mind emerge? I don't know. Maybe you have just this growing network of complexity that never completely subsumes the entire universe, but it just grows in scope and in, in, in terms of like the magnitude of complexification. So just like our biosphere is this integrated network of agents that have formed, has formed this global brain. The global brain is the network of humans exchanging information through our devices, the way neurons exchange information in the brain. And we, you could see humans is forming the global brain that sits on top of the global superorganism, which people have called Gaia, which is the biosphere as a self-regulating system. Um, basically, life went from being a single cell on a planet with all inanimate matter to covering the planet with this global organism and now this global brain and possibly an emergent global mind. So the idea is that this network just keeps expanding and that we can get the same sort of global brain and global mind on the scale of a solar system or galaxy or perhaps at a larger cosmic scale. And so Freeman Dyson has a quote that I use in the book where he basically says he makes no distinction between mind, like agents with mind, like humans and God. Basically, God is mind when it's past the scale of our comprehension yes so um i think when you ask is this thing this intelligence that emerges in the future from this high process of hierarchical self-organization is it a god um definitions are kind of subjective and they're all, all always changing so yeah i i would say that that's a, a fine term because um it is would be so intelligent that would it would have godlike causal power and whether it would have like omniscience um omnipotence omnipresent like the, you know those kind of like attributes of a, of a god i'm not sure but uh i do think that if let's say let's say the majority of mainstream physicists and scientists accepted this view of reality that, for example, Ray Kurzweil puts forth in, in The Singularity is Near, and he shows this diagram of the universe waking up, and he thinks that's the end state. Um, if people were to accept this, then I think we would have to really think about the spiritual implications of that. Why is reality structured in this way? Why is there this thing like this imminent God, to use the term of my old professor, Harold Morwitz, who I mentioned, who was inspired by Teilhard de Chardin, um, to me, that has spiritual implications and, uh, it's, it's wild to think about. And 
makes you think that religion isn't just some primitive philosophy. Maybe we should, you know, maybe there's interesting knowledge in religions that are the product of humans contemplating the nature of reality deeply and maybe arriving at truth through deep meditation and um perhaps they're doing some sort of like form of inference when you know re religious philosophers are are coming to these ideas so yeah i think that if the world is that way uh then it changes the game and then suddenly even though this is a physical naturalistic picture um it does allow for something like an emergent god and then you have questions about why are the universe why does the universe lead to that and it gets into the fine-tuning conversation what's the nature of fine-tuning is it part of you know is this universe just one universe out of a multiverse and most of them are lifeless or uh is do we need to think about the strong anthropic principle is this fine-tuning the result of some sort of um intelligent agent that has created the universe so yeah those are big open questions great now to move to something which is uh uh apparently not uh, very strongly related but i think it is very much related is uh you know the issue of human space expansion should we expand to the solar system and then maybe to the stars and does uh, our uh, the space expansion of humanity have an important role to play in this uh, cosmic story that you are telling yeah i think it's our destiny and i think if we don't achieve it life somewhere else will but i think that's the direction that we're moving in and it's really not fully in our control so it's part of this kind of global determinism that you mentioned and basically <clears throat> because intelligence is increasing through the evolutionary process um basically any sufficiently intelligent agents will realize that life has a game clock and and if the if life doesn't get off the planet before that planet's star dies before if we don't get off the planet before our sun dies then that's going to be the end of end of life or end of intelligent life so it create the the second law of thermodynamics this requirement that we we always that that life must maintain itself with a, a source of free energy um requires life to leave its planet of origin so i think if there is intelligent life elsewhere it's all trying to it's it's going to to realize that it has to get off the planet and then it will work towards that goal as a matter of necessity now some people think we're like you know what about the metaverse and maybe a reality kind of i mean a uh intelligent civilization isn't so worried with expansion they kind of go inward into this digital realm but all of that 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 digital world that metaverse we're creating that will end if we don't continually find new sources of free energy the computational machinery running these digital realms still require energy so life will constantly have to expand outward and exploit the 
free energy from other stars in the universe and other forms of energy that, you know, Einstein's equals MC squared show that all matter can actually allow for um, a source of energy. So it just seems to be a matter of us figuring out how to unlock the energy in the universe for our means. But I think we, we will go in that direction because we have to, uh, if we want life to continue to persist. That's what I think as well. In fact, when uh, a couple of weeks ago I was uh, watching uh, the launch of uh, Artemis One, which is very important because you know it's uh, the inauguration of our return to the moon. And this time I think we'll stay on the moon and move outward in the solar system. Then uh, a couple of days, Few days after that, I was watching uh, the close uh, lunar flyby with those beautiful images, and uh, you know, watching these things uh, and thinking about uh, the ultimate significance of our first, uh, I like, I like to say, uh, baby steps in space. I mean, I felt this uh, kind of happiness because I saw these uh, baby steps uh, as baby steps toward this uh, beautiful transcendental cosmic destiny that uh, we have in mind. And so, yes, I do agree with you very much. I think uh, space expansion is uh, something that must we must begin to happen now that we have the technological capability to do that. Well, of course, it's not the only important thing, but it is one of the important things that we should uh, take uh, care of. No? Absolutely. Uh, well, now we're, uh, you know, I don't, uh, I'm rushing because I don't really want to take too much uh, of your time. No? So let's uh, move back to our uh, planet now. And, um, you know, what... Uh, just say a few things in view of this. Uh, uh, How about perspective? Sure, go on, Terry. So, I have, I have a few dozen questions, but so um, I, I really like what you've done, but I think you're stuck you. in uh, um, a framework which you're kind of you, you know you're pointing your way out, but you. And so what I would suggest is, so in my personal history, I started out as a physicist, so you know, astronomy, actually, I was going to go into and all that. And, and, uh, and then I got to, you know, do my kind of, well, chemistry is kind of cool, too. And then I go, like, oh, and I had some summer stuff at a medical school. I know biology is cool. But every one of those, I kept getting narrowed. So and then I discovered, uh, I went to Berkeley, and you see my little, so, uh, Paul Feyerabend was there. So he kind of became my mentor. And and uh, I discovered that there were, although they don't allow you to talk philosophy in the science departments, um, in this philosophy department, they don't care. They'll talk about anything. So, yeah. <laughs> and I, I discovered that there were a bunch of escaped uh, scientists and mathematicians who had this in this field called philosophy of science. So the people who are competent in mathematics and, and science and, and had started uh, uh, talking about this stuff. So I, I went to University of London. So Popper and Lakatos and, and Kuhn are all my kind of my guys. So, but over time, the, um, the whole 20th century uh, philosophy of science was obviously, you know, crap. I mean, if I could put it bluntly, 
uh, the stuff coming out of the Vienna Circle and so forth. And, and, and it was, uh, you know, science proceeds by this logical, systematic thing. It's, yeah, no, I don't think so. So Kuhn kind of put that away and said, no, actually, there are these discontinuous steps, these revolutions, these conceptual advances. And if there aren't, then, you know, all you, need to do, all you would need to do is know one thing and then <laughs> logic would tell you everything else. Yeah. So, so gradually over time, and I actually, before I went to London, I had started reading the American pragmatists, and I encourage you to connect to them because I think that they had it right, uh, the right line of, of going. I think, uh, you know, it starts with Charles Sanders Pierce and, and William James, but then goes into uh, um, to Dewey is, is, is more, uh, a little more sophisticated. And I, and I quite like um, uh, Josiah Royce too. Um, not familiar and, with him yeah well Roy says this thing he was one of the primary primaries people dismiss him because he's Christian he, he went into Christianity and stuff like oh that's horrible but he had this <laughs> had this great book called he's recent well there's a the best book on Royce is called uh Johnny Smith who's his uh commentator I can't remember the name of it right now but it's a good book and uh but but Roy says this thing, I call it Royce's Criterion of Self-Referential Coherence. Big name. I like it. Yeah. All, it says, all, all he says is like, okay, let's say you come up with this theory of the universe. Okay. So does your theory of the universe include you in that universe coming up with this theory of the universe? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So if yeah. it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't. Okay. So we assume- I, I love this topic. Yeah. Kurt, Kurt Jaimungal, who has a channel called theories of everything he was speaking to um uh, a guy called greg henriquez who has what he calls a unified theory of knowledge and 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 kurt was talking about what a theory of everything should have and he said the theory of everything should refer to the theory of everything itself and i actually try to do that in the book and and say that reality i describe it as godelian but um and we can talk about that too um, so I like, you know, the guy you mentioned talking anything that mentions like self-referential stuff. I'm a, I'm a fan. Um, but that uh, basically part of this evolutionary process uh, includes the emergence and evolution of paradigms. And that basically the paradigm that's emerging is a paradigm that that includes itself in that evolutionary process. And so I call this natural philosophy in the book poetic meta naturalism which is kind of an adaptation of sean carroll's poetic naturalism but basically i say that the theory that i've outlined in the book um is a work in progress and uh that the theory itself should be continually updated in maybe like a, a bayesian manner um but that, yeah, it's it's currently incomplete me, and me, that there will develop, be. Let me develop Royce's implications one more second. Yeah, please do. So one thing is just, if you have, if you accept what he's, this idea, which seems straightforward, that whatever universe, theory of the universe you have has to have you in it and has to have you learning about it or having come up with it. So one of the implications of that is learning, learning as a process has to be part of the nature of the universe, Okay. And, and that if your way of saying like, well, does mechanics account for this? Like, no. And that's part of the Kuhnian thing. No, if it learning and learning involves these discontinuous steps, okay, that we're conceptually learning. And, and uh, there's an implication there that as we learn about the universe, we learn about ourselves, da, 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 da. So the other thing, there was a couple of things I wanted to, that one thing I think you're on to. 
Um, what what year around was was that book uh, released? Royce Royce the, the Royce uh, one. Well, Johnny Smith, I think it's called. Uh, well, you just look up Johnny Smith and Royce, you'll get it. Uh, Royce's first book. I mean, one of the things that Smith says is Royce's first book is called the religious the religious aspect of philosophy, and you can read that too. That's pretty good. But I think uh, Smith's oh, he takes an overview of Royce's positions which I think are quite good. And the main thing about the pragmatists in general, uh, Charles Sanders Pierce starts this way. He says, well, like all meaningful questions arise in a practical context, okay? So all this theoretical stuff, it's all derivative from practical questions, okay? And I, I refer in my stuff to, to uh, Kant's uh, critique of, of practical reason. And, he, and you know, he says, well, what are you doing practical reason? Well, we're making these decisions about how we should live, okay? There's two key things in there, should, and this context of how we should live. I mean, this is like, and if you go trace this back, I mean, I'm a died-in-the-wolf philosopher, trace it back to Socrates. What's the most important question? What's the most important context of the questions about life? It's how we should live. Okay, now, for your thing, how we should live is what leads us towards the organization, okay? So what we're asking is, how do I organize? I, I, I say some of it this way. So, well, let me back up. So I'm more, being dissatisfied with philosophy of science and the scientific worldview, I said, where am I in the scientific worldview? Not there. So, it goes yeah. to so then I, I morphed over, as I say, into philosophy of engineering. And I think pragmatism, as I see in some of my talk, pragmatism is an early version of philosophy of engineering. Okay. Now, philosophy of engineering, you're actually, uh, what's the problem of engineering? Well, it's the problem of design, okay? So uh, Herb Simon has some stuff. It's just like, uh, what, do engineers, yeah, what, is, what do engineers do? Well, they're problem solvers. What's problem solving? Well, it's just moving from a current state of affairs to a future more desirable state of affairs, okay? More desirable, that's valued, okay? So part of the idea is that engineers by nature, and we're all engineers, so engineers by nature are seeking to make to, to, to something better. They're looking for a better world. And they screw up. They don't know. There's a great book by uh, a guy named Sam Florman uh, called uh, "The Existential Pleasures of Engineering," which I think you would like. He's, yeah, he's really, I like really that good. title. Yeah, he's really really good. He gets into the uh, uh, con continental uh, uh, existentialists and realizes, like, hey, I have this ability to act in the world, but I don't have any script. So that's the existential part. Like, I don't know what to do, and I'm constrained. I have all this sort of stuff, but and a friend of mine is an engineering professor. We we're talking about this. And what is engineering? Well, they're problem solving. They go, well, I know. He says, no, no. He says, the problem, that characterization is that they don't know what the problem is. And, and, and so engineers typically discover the solutions to what they do. So that's a, the problem with the scientific ideas. Like, oh, we systematically, you know, like, no, we just, we muck around. And he said, what I teach my students is not that so much they're problem solvers, but they're value actualizers. Or what was his other one? Uh, opportunity, no, uh, okay. Opportunity actualizers or value manifestors. And that's a that's basically what engineering is, is trying to do. So what I wanna uh, suggest to you here <laughs> is that the proper, the proper position, proper like place you have to get to to start doing, I mean, you, you're pointing all over, you're all over it. I mean, it's, I, I could go on, yes, 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 yes. But ultimately, yeah, the, the context in which you're operating, what are you really doing? Okay. 
And you get this idea with the romance and that you get into the value, the whole sort of stuff. Uh, if you get into the engineering context, it's, it's one in which you're actually uh, acting in the world, you're doing things, it, gets, it brings it home to like, well, what, what am I doing? You know, the engineering, I want to image of the engineering thing, um, the design thing. So what are the engineers? Okay, how do I, how should we design uh, the irrigation of our fields? Agricultural engineering, should design. How should we design our houses? It's architecture, it's engineers do that. Okay, how should we design maybe our neighborhoods and our, and our cities? What's urban design? Yes, so it's okay, so how should we design our economy? Should we have a common currency? Should we have tariffs? Should we all oh, sort of taxation? Well, how, okay, but then how should we design a political system that's gonna help us manage all that sort of stuff? Well, at this point, you're Plato's Republic. This is what Plato's Republic was about, okay? And yeah, and the, uh, anyway, there's, I, I don't wanna go on and on here. I just, I, no, no, I, it's, it's, it's great. And it's really the direction I was going towards the end of writing the book. Um, and you can see some of this in not, not the final chapter, but the final chapters of part two, um, like chapter nine, mostly also chapter six, but, um, I, I came to the conclusion that, you know, trying to understand the nature of reality, like with like a mathematical theory, like a fundamental physics theory, wasn't the way to go. Um, and you have all of these problems with that, that, that Godel pointed out where, you know, no logical system is, is complete and consistent. You have these, these statements, these self-referential statements that can't be true, proven true or false in the system. And, um, so I was really attracted to, to Popper's sort of epistemology where he basically said that all of science starts with, um, a practical problem that we're problem, trying to solve yeah. and and then evolutionary epistemology which was invented by donald campbell based off popper's views basically applied that to to biology and and looked at organisms and the way i frame it in the book is that organisms are trying to solve this problem of survival but i put it in kind of thermodynamic terms this problem of staying far or staying out of thermodynamic equilibrium and that adaptations are solutions um, to that problem. And so it's kind of this kind of practical theory, which also says like, you know, how do we know if anything is true that, that you know, it, this, you know, mathematics isn't going to give us all the answers, how we arrive at new knowledge about the world is we simply have beliefs. Uh, I mean, we have um, theories and we test those theories and that's kind of change it a little bit we're not we're not trying to figure out this is a, a key move here so it took me a while to get here so maybe I, i'm older than you are so maybe i but yeah. it, it's please let me soak up your wisdom well what is the, what is the aim okay so we had so uh, dewey has this thing where he talks he says there are two representations of inquiry that you show the spectator representation and the participant representation Spectator representation is like, you know, I'm here, the universe is over there. So what I want to do, I want to find the objective laws governing the universe, a description of that and so forth. 
and it's not clear where I am. This is like spectator, right? So if I start messing with the universe, then oh, maybe I'm not even gonna be able to figure it out because I'm gonna screw it up. So I better watch out not to interfere with things, right? But so, and, and it doesn't really work. And it also, that spectator thing runs into all the self-reference paradoxes because obviously you're in it, you're out of it, or all this. Thing. So when you go to the participant thing, one of the things I've noted about the participant perspective, self-reference paradoxes don't come up. I'm not saying they, they tell you what the solution is. They just don't come up. Okay, interesting. Mm. So, but the main point I want to make is that the aim of, of a spectator is a, to come up with a description of the universe and to come up with predictions, okay? And, and, and you know, I want to know what the, but these are all uh, preliminary. They're in process things. So the aim of the participant is, is different. It's like bringing forth value in the world. So the real agenda that we have, we're all participants. And what we're trying to do is make the world better. Dewey had this thing called, uh, he said, we're participants in the, in the creation of the good. Okay. Oh, That's okay. the overall agenda, the creation of the good. So the, the fundamental context is not what we get stuck back into, and you fall into it a few times, but you, you, you see the way you don't want to be there. And that, that is that ultimately we're looking for the ultimate fixed final description of the universe. No, we're not. That's not what we're doing. And we never have been. So those descriptive things are component. I mean, if I'm an engineer, I want to know if there's a mountain over there and I want to know all sorts of stuff like that. And those are things that I act in relationship to. But ultimately the, the context, I, tell you, my, I have a couple of, yeah, I don't know if you know Nancy Cartwright. I don't know if she was on a- Sounds familiar. Yeah, she was over. She was head of LSE for a while. And she she has done a lot of work. She had this one book called uh, How the Laws of Physics Lie, something like that. But um, <laughs> okay. anyway, I'm going up. I want to just tell you two people who are symbolic. Three, actually. One, if you haven't looked at uh, Kevin Kelly, has a book called uh, yeah. What, what yeah, What Technology Wants. Yeah, I have his book, The Inevitable, back here. Um, Co-founder of okay, Wired, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, if you look at it, what technology wants, I said it's a great book, except it should have said what engineering wants. <laughs> but it's very good, and it has this thing about where are we in the in this in the cycle of the universe. Two others, I put them in the chat, but two others I think for me are really important. One is this guy Ramiz Nam, and Ramiz has this book called Infinite Resource: uh, The Power of Ideas on a Finite Planet. And my little, you know aphorism from that is it's not how much land you have, how much water you have, how much gold you have, how much silicon, it's what you do with it, which is design question. And the other guy is on the same track, uh, William McDonough. McDonough is an architect originally. He's won all the you know best environmentalist, wonderful persons in the life. And he wrote a couple of books, but the recent one is just amazing. It's called The Upcycle. And he's talking about trash and there's this circular economy stuff. But he's going like, no, circular, I want to make it not just putting it back in the system. When I have something that I've thrown away, I want to bring it back in and make it better. And his, his, his little aphorism is, uh, the subtitle of the book says, Beyond Sustainability, Designing for Abundance. He says, I, I don't really like sustainability. He says, it's like getting up every morning and asking how I can be less bad. <laughs> he says, I don't think that's what's going on. And this whole was it Vaxel Sim and all these guys, you know, we're all going to hell. You know, the universe is going to die, and we're using everything up. It's all and so. 
McDonough says, this is nonsense. This is nonsense. No, we're building things. This whole process is constructive. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So I agree. I, I we can't, we can't slow that. it. We can't slow growth. We have to just steer it in the right direction. Um, well, yeah. I mean, it's, and it's open. We're in an open system. But it, yeah. uh, one of the things to throw in there, uh, which get to your uh, way of life things, a guy named, uh, um, blank his name now, uh, William did it. Anyway, he, it's one of the guys uh, in the deep, deep sea vents, guys. There's Mike okay. Russell and Bill, 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 Bill. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 yeah, Russell's the, the main guy. Um, yeah, and Bill uh, did that. Anyway, they're all there, and the they're, they're new they're, they're, the guy who's the, the mouthpiece is this guy Nick Lane. Uh, is putting out. The yeah, letter. I was going to bring him up too. I, yeah. I talk about him in the book, and I I sent him the manuscript. He hasn't had time to to read it yet, but he was really intrigued because Harold Morowitz, who I mentioned a lot, is the main character in his new book Transformer. And yeah, um, yeah, yeah Lane. Yeah, yeah. And Lane argues that um that you'll get life on any wet, rocky, sunny planet. And uh, basically means that if the conditions are right, life will inevitably emerge. And if that's the case, then it's probably much more common than we uh, used to assume. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the, the bill that I can't remember his name of right now, uh, he, has a, he was big on eukaryotes, you know, going from prokaryotes to eukaryotes. And he has this quote, uh, which I quite like, um, and he says, well, he said, you know, if, if Darwinian evolution is like tinkering, you know, like this way, he said, life with eukaryotes is like a core of engineers. Okay, he says, eukaryotes are 200,000 times more powerful than any prokaryote. Now, power is, okay, what it means by more powerful is they have more ways of exploring their environment. They, have, they can make all sorts of new types of proteins. They can do all this sort of stuff. They can make organelles and all this sort of stuff that they can do. Okay, doesn't make them, I mean, they're, they're still, if you like, existential. They don't know what the hell to do, but they have all this potential, you know? So, yeah, uh, yeah. and so those guys, uh, um, if, you, if you're reading uh, Transformer, you'll, you'll come across the bill that I'm blanking out. Yeah, I, I mentioned all those people uh, in, in chapter two or three of the book when I talk about the origin of life and the, this idea that life arose in the hydrothermal vents. So yeah, I mentioned Russell and Lane and the my, my old professor Morowitz who passed away in 2016. He was yeah, one of the other big origin of life people who um who believe in that that theory. It's it's being challenged by some people. There there's an origin of life researcher named Bruce Dahmer who is trying to convince me that uh life emerged in um freshwater. Um I guess there's like, like, um, but it would still be like, kind of like hot springs. It would be a similar mechanism, but he thinks that like the salty ocean environment, like wouldn't allow for life, but, um, oh. yeah. Um, well, there's a lot yeah, of stuff all, all interesting mind, stuff. Yeah. One other thing that, I mean, I hung out with the, uh, with the deep sea guys, they, they have a, they have a group called, if you want to look at their conferences, it's interesting called, uh, chemobryonics. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, and chemobryonics trans uh, is chemical garden uh, that they're going on, and they have a bunch of conferences. You can look at, look up their deal. But I I, I went to one of them, and uh, one of the things that's clear from these guys is you bring up Darwin. It's like what? No, no Darwin is just a complete miss about where we're going. They're totally constructivists. 
Okay, so they're very, and if you like, they very much of this engineering thing. And I call it my my favorite expression is recursive enabling. I like that recursive enabling. Each level that we advance, more tools, more ability to do things, we explore new ways of doing things. And you know, this stuff about niche creation is one of the biggies. You know, and the Darwinian thing. I mean, asking about niche creation didn't doesn't seem to have come up. And so the, the niche creation. Yeah, a ton of Darwin's framework leaves out just tons of important things. It leaves out self-organization. It leads out, yeah. leaves out niche creation. And I talk about uh, or niche construction and, and niche emergence is what I talk right. about a lot right, in the right. book. Yeah. The emergence stuff is, is crucial. Yeah. Anyway, so that's. <laughs> well, I, yeah, no, I have a lot of stuff to read. I'm, I'm really excited about, about all of those different books. Something I've, you know, Julie and I just didn't get to talk about because there's not enough time is how does all of this apply to to society today and it gets into a lot of the stuff that you're talking about um but yeah maybe in a future conversation we can talk about all of the practical aspects of it um because yeah I I was definitely going in the direction of of what you're describing like midway through reading the book um I mean writing the book uh so yeah it's exciting. Well, one In fact, let's yeah. leave uh, the discussion of uh, more uh, practical things to another time. So and, Peter Corny, uh, we are all tired. But I wanted to ask you, Terry, can you say something about your book? It sounds uh, very intriguing from what I have been reading. Well, so, the last so, so one of the things I did in life, we set up this... Uh, Institute and uh, and uh, we a long story with Portland State and we we ran anyway ran a public lecture series. Uh, we bring in Carl Sagan and Jane Goodall and you know you get twenty five hundred people and they pay some money so we made you know this is how we funded ourselves in part a Great. lot of sponsors and stuff. But I, I used to do stuff with, with hawking. I got into doing hawking. So um, the book is about uh, the first four lectures, the public lectures that I organized for Stephen Hawking. And, uh, um, and, and of course, when you're taking Hawking around, you know, you chat about this and all that sort of stuff. And to some extent, it's, it's, it's you know, a, a popularized version of my PhD uh, dissertation because they, so all of, all of Hawking's people are saying, who, who the hell are you, Bristol, anyway? And what are you doing? Where did you come from? So that's sort of like how it gets into some of my stuff. But it's basically, it's kind of a review of um, 20th century uh physics and philosophy of science but on a Very i cool. like to yeah. think it's on a on a pretty popular level but it goes all the way through and 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 uh, we get into it goes into the social stuff too there's a big discussion with steven let me say one anecdote so i'm trying to explain to him about the limits of science and you know let's you can't say well you know you think you can't say something like the the entire universe is blue it can't be one characteristic it's always got to have a complementary thing you're not actually saying it this is a popular thing you're saying anything, you're also denying something. Right? So and we're going on this, and we're going into all this stuff. And and his nurses are going like just kind of spacing out. You know, they're in the van, and we're talking about this. Show. I said, oh, okay, it's really simple. It's like some people think that everything is competitive. The whole everything is everybody's selfish. Okay, and uh, and I said, you know, it's just like that's saying every you know everything is selfish. And one of the nurses goes. Well, of course it is. My God, no, you're not seriously. Yeah, I, she said, I have a lot of experience. I know this. <laughs> so we go over this. 
And I try and say, well, you can't, you're not really saying anything unless you have this other side of it about not being very saying, true. Yeah. So we go through this whole thing with Stephen. We're, we're talking about it. And at first they're like, yeah, nobody's. And then it was the next day and we're, so then the people are getting more sympathetic. They're like, well, maybe, you know, it's halfway between, or maybe there's some of each, or maybe it's a dialectic between cooperation. Absolutely. Cooperation. Yeah. Okay. So you go on it. So we're trying to we're trying to nail this down. And this is the last anecdote. So it just I'm just putting Stephen on a plane. Now there's a background story to this, but I won't go into it. But we had a we had a, a waiter in a restaurant a couple of days before who was really rude. And we were all all the rest of us were gonna just trash this guy. And Stephen said, Don't. And we're all going, okay. You know, <laughs> so like if I see there's a bunch of we're a bunch of kids who were out walking and there's a dog that's barking. And so I said, Hey, let's throw rocks at him. Somebody says, you know, don't. That's kind of what it was. So so anyway, I'm just putting Stephen on the plane. And I and I realized this, and I said, Stephen, because we're trying to figure out what is out, what is a non-competitive, what is being nice to people. So I said, Stephen, why did you stop us from doing that? And he said, I felt for him. <laughs> I leave. <laughs> That's awesome. I love hearing that story. That's really cool. Um, I'm I'm glad you had those interactions, <laughs> and uh, I'm glad that it's going in a book. And yeah, I was having similar discussions last night. There was like a book club. Um, where people were meeting to discuss my book and I joined and we talked about that sort of everything is kind of defined by its opposite and that, you know, there, there's always this other side to things. And if you're not recognizing it, you're not even really defining the thing that you're talking about. And yeah, Hegel, his, you know, idea of this dialectic and how yeah. usually truth emerges from like two sides debating a topic. And uh, I think that's like a very deep There's and fundamental truth. Yeah. yeah. The question is always to me with that, with Hegel stuff, is like, I stuck to fire oven about this. It's like, yeah, great. This is great. But I think he's still describing. I want to know what kind of, what do I do? What do, what do I do about that? I have some of that in my, and I, you know, see if you look at some of my talks, there's a, let me give you one thing. There's a guy named, uh, Galli, G-A-L-L-I, he was one of the pragmatists. And he had this concept, what he called uh, essentially contested concepts. You can actually Google it. I think that last time I looked at the, Google, at the, or at the Wikipedia page, they screwed it up, but it's essentially contested concept. The idea is this, there's certain concepts like justice, okay? Well, a mm -hmm. couple, maybe multiple types, but these justice cooperative, or, you know, what you earned or what you or we share, or, you know, and he said, and, in, and, and so he said, there are these concepts like that. And I think reality is another. What, what's reality? Is it particles? A wave? Is it how do you know? Like the reality is, what is reality is an essentially contested concept. And there are all these things. So he started pointing this out that there are a lot of the important things are these essentially contested yeah. concepts. And then this guy Connolly comes along. He's a political science. And Connolly comes along and he says, Golly, that's really, really good. But here's the thing it's only when people, realize people in a dialogue if you like political dialogue where realize that they're dealing with essentially contested contests when they realize that that's when enlightened dialogue begins yeah yeah <laughs> totally um, anyway, i could go on whatever yeah no i'm i'm, I'm googling all of these things as, as you're saying and so uh, i have a lot to read but yeah um yeah, yeah, yeah well, you're on a good track. I, I really love Morowitz. Is he was he your uh, teacher or something? 
Yeah, um, at Mason, uh, he was a professor for, uh, it was like a directed reading course that I could choose whatever professor to work with. And it was kind of figuring out what you wanted to do your dissertation on. And so he assigned readings and I wrote essays, kind of philosophy of mind stuff. But basically, uh, the department said that that what what was too abstract and that if I wanted to do that stuff with Morowitz that I would have to be a philosophy uh, <laughs> student. So I would have to transfer to the philosophy PhD program. So then I got a lot more practical and started doing uh, research on uh, visual attention. But um, Morowitz and I, uh, that directed readings course, basically, since we were having these discussions, from the beginning, he just opened it up to anybody at George Mason who wanted to attend. And so then a lot of like the, it was called the Krasnow Institute. It was part of Mason, but they ran the the neuroscience program that I was in and um, it was very integrated. So it had like physicists working on neuroscience and computer scientists and, uh, you know, AI researchers. And so the, the consciousness club meetings where we discussed all these topics, um, had this, you know, really diverse group of people. And it's funny, you know, you mentioned, you know, some things are kind of off limits in science departments, but this yeah. group, <laughs> luckily we had this group and, and, and Morowitz is pretty open-minded and, and, you know, real, a big fan of philosophy. So there was this kind of materialist ideology that kind of, um, dominated but there was like constant pushback by people like me who were like you know um wanting to go outside that and the book is um uh kind of a product of those meetings because yeah it was through him and in his collaborator eric smith um that i learned about you know instead of just thinking about like life in, in terms terms of like biology um kind of this thermodynamics and statistical mechanics view of life. And uh, really, um, he was a, just a big fan of like epistemology in general and introduced me to Popper and he was a big fan of Kant. And um, yeah, so the, those discussions really planted the seeds for the book I wrote. You, I think you mentioned his last book. And I really like that. I can't remember the name of it. But something yeah, like The Origin and Nature of Life on Earth. And yeah. uh, before that, he wrote The Emergence of Everything. And my book was kind of modeled after that as far as like he was trying to tell the whole story. But um, he talks about in that book, like all of the emergences from the emergence of like stars and planets to, you know, um, language and culture and tool making. There's like 28 emergences he traces where I mostly focus on just life and in, in, in the evolution of the biosphere. Um, but I also talk more about the future, like where where is it going? He would always say things like, you know, you know, Julia and I were talking about the Omega point and he's like, I'm just trying to understand, you know, what's going on on earth right now. Like I, I can't relate to people thinking about that far in the future. Yeah. But he seemed to, at the end of the emergence of everything, yeah, he he did seem to think that, that's where everything's going. And he spoke about an imminent God. So he, you know, oh, he whoa. was, he wasn't, he wasn't a that's Christian. Like but... book. At the, at the, I definitely want of... to read his books. Yeah. At the end of yeah, Kelly, the... Kelly's book, he talks about 
he talks about Kurzweil actually. And he says, when you go there, where is Kurzweil taking us? And then, well, it's like this all-knowing, all he said, you know, it, it kind of sounds like God in the old way. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it, you know, like, oh, you know, some sort it of doesn't. thing about values and all that stuff. It's, it's, it's an interesting. And maybe book. that can, maybe that can unify. Maybe this, this worldview can be the, the, the worldview that unifies the secular and the spiritual mm -hmm. crowd. Um, and so, yeah, I'd like to talk to Kevin Kelly in the future. I sent him the book. He didn't respond. So, um, but uh, we have some mutual friends like uh, Jason Silva. So maybe I can uh, to get to Steve him. Steve Johnson is a, is a buddy of his down there too. Do you, I don't know if you Steve Johnson stuff, how, how we got to now. So yeah, like I know the name, but not familiar. He's very good. Oh. He's very good. And, and he's uh, very much in the idea of, um, development of technology I'll, I'll send you do i have your email somewhere probably i can find it but the uh I'll, my my well you can look it up my, if my, you could send me a list of all the books you mentioned that would be really really good well they're in the chat there if you can yeah so i've that. copied and pasted okay yeah when yeah I, there are many books in the chat I'm go uh i'm now putting my email in the chat can you also put yours there my what my email yeah no yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm gonna have to go here. They're gonna kick me out of where I am. <laughs> Eleven o'clock. Okay, here. Uh, yeah, this is mine. Yeah. There's mine. Okay, there's mine. Right. All right, so good. Waiting I'm for uh, there is one. I'll have to run too. And, okay. Uh, thank you guys. Well, I want to thank you both for this uh, yeah. super conversation. I would yeah, say. Very nice for house you know my wife is uh, getting upset with me because here is dinner time <laughs> i have been telling her uh, since half an hour just five more minutes five more minutes <laughs> yeah we don't want to get you in trouble yeah we, i'm in the same yeah, boat it's a really 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 good book great effort and i look forward to reading your book then all yeah, right, me so, too. It sounds super interesting. Well, that's, that was like, I have to say that was my that was my 2016 book. So it's not like the recent thing that that my current obsession, which maybe if you look at some of this, is thermodynamics. Everything's about and it's engineering thermodynamics, not the regular thermodynamics. Yeah, Ju Julian Barber's book, uh, the Janus Point, goes through the history of thermodynamics. It's pretty awesome. Um, also, um, the physics of life, uh, is a good book by, um, he's a friend of mine. I'm forgetting his name right now, but, uh, he also wrote, um, I think a book called design in nature. Yeah. Blanking. Anyway, I'll send you, I'll send you those titles. I think you'll right, find huh? those interesting. Well, I'm afraid Bob has gone. Let me stop the recording now.